Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah and Bean. And welcome back for a brand new year and a brand new episode of Great Moments in Weed History. We are officially back from our hiatus. That's H I G H dash hiatus. <laughs> and Bean, we also got something very special for the people this year. Why don't you tell us about it? We are now officially starting today. A weekly podcast. Woo! We are very, very happy to be a part of your life every Weedens Day. <laughs> Weedness. Weedness Day. Yes. Yeah, so just when you wake up and you see that it's Weedness Day, some people call it Wednesday still, there's a new episode waiting and we are going to get blazed with you once a week in the middle of the week every week from now on. It's all in one podcast feed. You should subscribe now wherever you got the podcast that you're currently listening to. And every Weedness Day, you will get either a classic Great Moments in Weed History episode, an interview with an incredible person from our cannabis community, or a Moment in Weed episode that is going to be us chopping it up, talking about something that just happened because the world of weed changes very, very fast. Yeah, that's right. So please subscribe now so you don't miss any of this awesome stuff we've got coming your way this year, 2022. All right. So for today's episode, our guest is Weldon Angelos. In 2004, Weldon Angelos was sentenced to 55 years in federal prison for selling $900 worth of weed. A music producer who has worked with legends like Snoop Dogg and Tupac, Weldon's case became a symbol of the racism and injustice that plagues our criminal justice system. But as you'll hear in this episode, from the moment he arrived at a maximum security prison to serve a virtual life sentence, he began advocating for himself and other nonviolent cannabis prisoners. Now the head of the Weldon Project, he's built a truly bipartisan coalition that pushed President Obama to commute his sentence in 2016, followed by a full pardon from President Trump in December of 2020. And here's where we insert the record-scratching sound effect. Uh, and that is right. If you are a fan of Donald Trump and you still listen to this podcast, first of all, congratulations on loving weed history enough to deal with two guys who do not... See the world the way that you do. And I mean this sincerely. Uh, but I have to tell you, this is your episode, weed libertarians and conservative cannabis fans. Because, you know, we even get in a few shots at Joe Drug War Biden in this one. Yeah, seriously. Even if you don't politically lean the same way we do, uh, I think we can share some kicks in this episode. So more on Weldon. Since his release... Weldon has continued working tirelessly to end cannabis prohibition and for the release of all cannabis prisoners. In September, he sent the Biden administration a letter signed by more than 150 celebrities, athletes, politicians, law enforcement professionals, and academics calling on the president to issue a full and complete unconditional pardon to all people with nonviolent federal marijuana convictions. For more on what the current administration is, and is not doing about cannabis, check out our recent interview with Representative Earl Blumenauer, one of the leading legalization voices in Congress. And that episode is called, Is Biden Gonna Legalize or What? Earl, 
I think I can call him Earl, is a super cool guy. Coolest non-weed smoking guy I'm pretty sure either of us has met. So please go check out that episode if it sounds interesting. Yeah, and let him out, President Biden. You promised him out. you would, and it is well past time to do that. Speaking of going back into the back catalog of this show... We have another new feature in the new year, which is we are encouraging all of our listeners, our people, to please, one, spread the word to your friends. We are shadow banned on social media. We have black helicopters circling over the great moments in Weed History production (laughs) facility as we speak. They are trying to cancel us and shut us down. And the only way we consistently have to get new listeners and bring people into this is you reaching out and telling your friends. And if you want to throw a great moments in weed history, listening party, even just for your crew, three or four people, you're going to get together in person or online and listen to an episode from our extensive back catalog, we will send you a personalized video greeting for you and your friends. Just let us know a little bit in advance and please help us spread the word. Yeah, absolutely. This show is by stoners, for stoners, and of course, we don't have access to traditional media channels to get the word out. And also, we've got over 50 episodes in our back catalog. If there's one that you really like that you want to show your friends or you want to play in the background of that next blunt ride, let us know and we'll send you that little personalized message. It's no trouble. Truly, we would love to do it for you. And if you really, really want to support us, and we are going weekly for you now. I mean, that's a lot of shows. We're committing to 52, maybe 50 this year. Might take a week off. Might take a couple weeks (laughs) off. Uh, You know, the best way you can really directly support more and more great moments in weed history is to support us on Patreon. You can go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. It's long but easy to remember. Great Moments in Weed History. and you could put five on it. Please subscribe now if you haven't already. Yes, and just one more listener's note for this episode. To put things in historical perspective, we talked about Weldon Angelos as a music producer working with Snoop. Well, as you'll hear in this episode, he's so old school that he produced a song for Snoop in which the premise is that Snoop can't find any weed at home In Los Angeles. (laughs) Not the case anymore, considering that Snoop actually has his own or maybe multiple weed brands under his own name. So this problem is truly ancient history. Alrighty, so I have a beautiful snodgrass pipe packed to the brim with weed right here. Bean, what you got going over there? Oh, well, I'm not a blunt smoker. The tobacco doesn't work for me, but I have one of these beautiful joints that you can find now wrapped in hemp leaf. I do recommend them if you're mm. looking for that blunty vibe without tobacco. But what... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm get, I'm hearing that some percentage of our listening audience has not ready to roll and that you're freaking out and I can completely understand that and it's not how you want to start the new year, but all you have to do is hit pause take your time split a blunt roll a joint pack a bowl pack a bong dab a dab and then it's dabulating dabulish uh, <laughs> we take that 
<laughs> or not. I think that was perfect. I, I'm very much a fan of that. You can vape it. You can eat it. You can rub it all over your body. But whatever you want to do or not do, when you come back, I can promise you one thing. We will be ready for another great, great moment, moment in weed history. Well then, Angelos, welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So where we often like to start with our guests is what is your personal history with cannabis? When did it all begin? What was your first introduction to the plant? What led me to experiment with cannabis was Dr. Dre's The Chronic. It came out, I believe, in 1992, and I was, you know, a young kid, and I thought it was cool seeing the weed leaf, you know, watching the videos, hearing about Chronic, and I, you know, I had been exposed to cannabis before, but I never tried it myself. And so, you know, I got on my bike, me and my one of my friends, and we rode down, you know, about uh, 10 miles to go get a nickel bag. We got back, and, you know, I opened it, and everyone's talking about green, green. I looked at this, and it was brown. And I'm like, I thought weed was green. <laughs> like, oh, well, okay. And so that's, you know, where I first experimented with it. And it sort of opened up a creative side in me. And I started wanting to make music. Sort of my inspiration, Dr. Dre's The Chronic. Thank you, Dr. Dre and Snoop. Yeah, thanks from us as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two, two big time friends of the podcast, as we like to say here. I do want to ask, where geographically were you where the weed was brown and you had to ride... 10 miles for a nickel bag. So, I mean, there was good weed. I just didn't know the right connections because I wasn't a smoker. And so this was in Salt Lake City, Utah. Fortunately, you know, as I started experimenting more and more, you know, I found the right contacts where we got what they called back then kind. You know, I met Mm. a few hippies and, um, you know, they had the bomb. And so it it was over with from there. Yeah, it's always the hippies. Yep. (laughs) Yep. I had a really good hippie contact. And he had the best I had ever seen at that point. That's what's incredible about our community. Any exciting endeavor that can combine Dr. Dre and hippies, you know, that's that's weed right there. Um, yeah, I actually got a funny story behind that about the uh, hippie friend, because later I would introduce him to Snoop and then Snoop took him on all the tours with him because he had the best weed. Still to this day, so. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. How did how did music go from a passion of yours to something that you were directly involved in making music and producing music? I'd been listening to hip hop from the 80s, but Death Row Records was like a huge inspiration for me. And same with Tupac, it was around 94, me and my friends started a little rap group. You know, we started uh, making music on the local level. Unfortunately, Salt Lake City didn't have the best production and I was learning to be a beat maker. You know, I was uh, experimenting with the keyboard. So in 95, I relocated to Los Angeles. I went into a studio in LA and I bumped into some of the uh, recording artists at Death Row Records. I think the first guy I met was uh, Daz from the Dog Pound, Snoop's cousin, and later uh, met Tupac's Outlaws. And so all the folks at Death Row, you know, ended up, you know, helping helping me, working with me, you know, basically sh- showing me the way on how to get my own record label, get a record deal. And some years later, everyone left Death Row. I ended up starting my own record label and getting a record deal thanks to the help of Snoop Dogg. In 2000, I ended up on Snoop's couch, like staying up till 5.30 in the morning making music. And one of the first songs we did was a weed smoking song called A Little More Dope to Smoke. 
Hey yo, extravagant records. Give us some of that G shit. Oh. A-B-A-B, this D-O-G, you got some chronic smoke? I'm at the house, fresh out, dog, I'm burnt out. I can't find it, so I'm looking, can you help me out? I need to locate it quick, you dig what I'm talking about? Snoop was very inviting. You know, I, I had a friend badass that worked with Snoop as well. And so we started going to Snoop's, you know, every every month making records. I took those records and, and got a record deal out of it. We did a video to the A Little More Dope to Smoke song. We went on tour with Snoop and we were filming it. We made this video, A Little More Dope to Smoke, where, you know, we were smoking footlong joints and, you know, just some funny shit. And that's sort of how my case got started. Because I was bringing a lot of these rappers, Snoop, Mac Dre, Tupac's Outlaws, a lot of other people to Salt Lake City, you know, because it was a it was a fresh market. So I was, you know, bringing them out here for different events and features and stuff like that. And the local authorities seen this going on. And that's sort of what triggered an investigation because they had been wanting to get Snoop for a while. In 2000, 2001, they raided the, the offices of Death Row Records. You know, they raided Murder, Inc. And they were arresting rappers like crazy. They coined the term hip hop police. And so, you know, they felt like this young kid from Salt Lake City, Utah is working with Snoop. There's got to be some kind of criminality going on. There's got to be something illegal mm-hmm. happening. And so they sent an informant to investigate. And I think he somehow got some of the raw footage from our little more dope to smoke video. And, you know, that's when the investigation kicked off. Just to jump back a little bit before we get into, you know, all the the subsequent issues that, that came with this investigation to really paint a picture of what it was like to be in the studio at this time. I mean, myself as a beat maker and DJ since I was pretty young, you know, there's a romanticism I attach to the feeling of being in the studio, getting stoned with a bunch of people, creating music. So I wanted to ask, like, what kind of equipment were you using at that time? What was the process? How did cannabis inspire your creativity when you're doing it at this highest level of beat making? Yeah, so we were using the, 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 I think we started with the Trinity, the Korg. Um, And then, you know, I graduated to the Triton. Back then, I had another co-producer named Big Hollis. And so he was doing a lot of the beats as well because I was moving around. We ended up producing records that featured the biggest names in the industry, Nas, you know, Eminem's group, Snoop, everyone you can think of. We even had a song with Pink. And so, you know, things were going extremely well. And, you know, every time we went to Snoop's, nonstop smoking, you know, it, it was crazy. And I brought my friend with me who, you know, Snoop uh, named John Lennon because he looked kind of like John Lennon, but he always had the best smoke. And so he sort of became like, you know, Snoop's go-to guy. And, you know, he always went on the tours with them. They ended up hanging out more than I did. You know what I mean? Because, you know, he always had the best weed. Snoop always wanted the best weed. One of the songs that we did, he actually tried to purchase some through the song. He's like, he's all, that's a bomb-ass weed. He's I got a thousand on the shit right now. And we were like, no, you ain't getting none of this. You know, we were just giving (laughs) him a little bit. I think we only had like two ounces of it. It was like some San Diego lemon drop or some shit. But at the time, Mm. it was the best shit. So... Yeah, well, that was my follow up question, because I'm not I'm not I'm an appreciator of music, but not not involved in its creation. So my gear is like, what was what was the weed around? What was Snoop smoking? Tell us a little more about the strain that your friend was bringing to the table. This is like a very uh, pivotal and much uh, romanticized era in weed is that like 90s SoCal Snoop scene kind of weed. What, 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 what did it look like and how did it smoke? So, I mean, we had like the white widow, white rhino, lemon drop, face weed. We, we had, we called this one Y2K because it, it was, the, it was, it came out in the, two, in the early 2000s. It was the best weed I ever seen. It was the type that literally made your whole entire house smell like 
skunks. And I ain't seen nothing <laughs> like that since. Like some of the best weed. I miss some of that OG, you know, some of the strains that were out back then that you don't really see anymore. Yeah, there. I mean, there were so many strains. I don't even remember all the names because, you know, going through my prison and everything basically was really traumatic. So I lost a lot of my uh, memory. And, and in terms of... Uh how it might have fueled the creative process with Snoop, with Tupac. Really interested in that link between cannabis and creativity. There definitely is a link. I don't know exactly how that works, but it's sort of what made me, you know, want to make music. And a lot of people don't talk about this, but I feel like hip hop, hip hop music, hip hop culture normalized cannabis use. And I felt like it got rid of the stigma that's around uh, being a cannabis user. And so I give hip hop a lot of credit for where we are today. This is a really sort of free expression of the love for cannabis at a time where cannabis is still very much illegal federally and at a state level. People are going to jail for it. You just mentioned earlier the hip hop police. How did that all go down from your perspective? Yeah, well, I think there's a, a few different aspects to it. One, you know, a, a lot of people in government and authorities didn't like hip hop and hip hop culture. They blamed hip hop music for making society worse because those in hip hop were just telling the truth about what they were seeing and where I was from. You know, they didn't want to see that culture. They basically looked at me like I was bringing Ebola into Utah. There was a racial element to it as well. But it had something to do with, you know, that hip hop was a a weed smoking culture. There was an informant that had got just out of prison. He and I was from the same neighborhood growing up. He went to prison for like, you know, five years. He got out, caught another case, an armed meth trafficking case. So he was facing 25 years. He ended up deciding to cooperate. He told the authorities that he had information on murders and on cartels bringing pounds of meth into the city. And they said, no, we don't, we don't care about that. We want well in Angelos. And he was like, he's not doing much. He just sells a little bit of weed and, you know, he's making music. They're like, that's who we want. And they kept asking about music. You know, what, what, what are these rappers doing? So they basically sent him in to try to infiltrate my, my group. Well, they were interested in the hip hop aspect. When I got out of jail, you know, 13 years later, we interviewed some of the agents and some of the people involved in the investigation. And, and all of them confirmed that hip hop played a major role in the investigation of my case. Wow, that that really reminds me of a couple of episodes of our show that we've done about the early jazz scene and cannabis. This is not a new story, unfortunately, just as institutional racism is not a new story. The first drugs are essentially of the United States, Harry Anslinger, had a coordinated campaign to target not just jazz musicians, but jazz clubs, jazz record labels, anybody involved in this music, many of the same stereotypes, ugly stereotypes that you describe being applied to hip hop were there in the same way. Did you have a sense of taking risks or were you simply following your dream of music and, and you know, maybe selling a little weed on the side to, to, to get by as so many artists do? Yeah. So, well, first I want to know, you know, we interviewed a lot of people since I got out and a lot of them said, if you were making country music or rock, you wouldn't have been prosecuted like you were. They were trying to put the max amount of pressure on me, hoping that it would lead to the arrest of other famous rappers. And so when that didn't happen and wouldn't happen, they threw the books at me. But before I get to the trial, I want to note that 
you know, I was following my dream to be in music. I just never thought it was possible. But when I started getting better at, at making beats and, and just, you know, writing lyrics and stuff that I actually chased that dream. And, you know, I come from a very poor background. And so, you know, I was selling small amounts of weed on the side even before you know, I made it in music. And so I continued cannabis was just part of the culture. It was everywhere. Cannabis doesn't hurt anyone. A lot of people that I grew up with were doing home invasions, selling keys of Coke and meth and, and, and killing people. I'm just selling weed. To me, it was like, this ain't, this is nothing. Even when I got a record deal, you know, we were around cannabis. It was just the culture. So it wasn't nothing bad to me. And if you look at the laws that are, that were around back then, even though I could, when I could have went to jail, it wasn't nothing like, that ended up happening. One of my friends killed someone over a parking stall. He got out eight years, eight years over murdering someone over a parking stall. And so selling weed, what's the worst that could happen, you know, is what I thought. Yeah, I didn't see it as a big risk. I saw it as something that may result in a month in jail max. And so can you comment a little bit more about this antagonism between law enforcement and the rap community, right? Obviously, we're around the time of cop killer. We're around the time of uh, Snoop you know, ha having a very public trial and sort of this rising tension, right? Like the jazz scene we're talking about, it was very much the beginning of this battle. But those jazz songs were not explicitly addressing police and saying 187 on a motherfucking cop, right? So can you describe what the atmosphere was like at that time? Yeah, I think one thing is that, that you know, what hip hop was doing, I mean, it was making some pretty rough music, but it was, they were also speaking out against police brutality. And the police didn't want this on a mainstream level, letting people know what's really going on in, in the black community. Police are beating us, setting us up their shooting us. And I experienced some of that growing up. Some of the gang unit and drug task force were pulling over some of my friends and saying, take a picture, throwing up this gang sign, or we're going to drop this gun in your car. And I've been pulled over plenty of times where the cops would say, I smell weed in your car. You know, I'm, uh, get out of your car. When I search your car, I got probable cause. And they were just fishing for something else. People like Tupac actually got beat by the police for speaking out. Most rappers back then were activists by default. You know, they were speaking out against injustices. And so I'm bringing these hip hop people to Salt Lake City, a, a city that doesn't have a big hip hop scene yet. And it was a shock to them. You know, they, they went out swinging. And so when I got prosecuted, the whole trial was about, about this fear that they have of this kind of culture coming to Salt Lake City, Utah. And so they did their best to scare the jury by making, making me look like a bridge to mainstream hip-hop in Salt Lake City, Utah. Law enforcement figured that there must be something illegal going on. Or am I selling guns to these rappers? Am I selling weed to them? So they sent this informant to investigate. I think it was like a two and a half month period. This informant purchased $300 worth of cannabis three times. So we're talking a total of $900 worth of cannabis. The, the first two transactions happened over like a two week period. And that was it. And this informant started asking for guns. He started asking for meth. One time he said, how about a pound of meth? And I'm like, what does that mean? He, I said, are you asking me to sell you a pound? Or are you asking to, uh, to sell me a pound? And he said, it's very narcish vocabulary. Yeah, he said, either way. And I'm like, either way, either you're looking for <laughs> meth or you're looking to sell it. It's not either way. I was like, this is weird. So I stopped talking to him. And about six months later, you know, he was blowing me up. I never answered his calls. He called me and he said, he started threatening me for not answering his calls. He knew I owned a gun. And so he said, you know, get your gun and let's meet up and handle it. And I'm like, handle what? Because I don't want to talk to you. Because, you know, I just got a record deal. My album, we from the LBC is doing well. Got, you know, $100,000 checks coming in. 
everything's going good. And so I, he says, you know, let's meet up, bring your gun, let's handle it. And I said, I'll just see you when I see you. I ain't worried about you. And I hung up on him. Once I hung up on him, I heard a knock at the door and I opened it and I got rushed by the gang unit. And they came in with guns trying to get me to leave my place with armed so they could either shoot me or they could catch me with a gun outside of my house and say, oh, look, this dude must carry a gun everywhere he goes. Because when they arrested me, they found that I owned a legal gun in my house in a gun safe. They took that gun and said, oh, you must have had this gun back during the other transactions. Because during the three transactions, they documented everything the informant said, everything the police officers observed, and everything the surveillance showed. They never mentioned anything about a gun. It was just three marijuana transactions. And under state law, that's probation. I probably wouldn't even have got a felony. And so yeah, somebody they, should tell me you don't need a gun for a weed deal. <laughs> that's not especially somebody that works. I know since I was 15. So I'm going to give you some dates. So on October, uh, I think it was October 15th, 2002, they submitted a case file to the federal prosecutors because he was under federal indictment. And in the case file, it just had three marijuana transactions, nothing else. And two weeks later, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office sends the file back. They re-interview the informant. And this is after I got arrested, right? I got, they see I own a gun. They re-interview the informant. And now they say, oh, one agent, not the other agents. There was like five agents that were investigating me. The other agents never said anything about a gun. This one agent interviews the informant and says, oh, by the way, Mr. Angelos had a gun back at those times. And the informant reported it back then, never documented it. And so now I'm facing decades in prison and they arrest me with the fire in my house. That's another you know, charge. So now I'm facing a hundred years of mandatory imprisonment. Now they have the pressure where they can come to me and say, look, we want celebrities. We want to prosecute celebrities. So they had a conversation with my attorney and my attorney laughed it off and told me about it. We're like, fuck no. And they came back to him and said, no, fuck you. We're not playing. This is what we're going to do. And they came back with 20 count indictment off three marijuana transactions. And so now I'm facing 105 years of mandatory imprisonment and plea bargain's not an option. So I'm forced to go to trial over $900 worth of cannabis. So I just want to make a couple of observations based on what you said, one of which is the police lie all the time in cases like this. This is not an anomaly. I've been reporting on the war on drugs for 20 years unfortunately, and Abdullah has done this work as well. We've spoken with many, many, many people from different backgrounds who've had these kinds of experiences with the police where they simply lie on the stand, they fabricate evidence, and they do it mostly in cases like this where it is not about the individual crime, which we don't feel should be a crime, but let's say it's on the books. It is about the person and the community, and that is when they are most likely... Absolutely to invent these facts. Um, and so it, it gets I, crazier. I see journalists at, we'll call them the corporate media, pretending that they're just coming to the realization that this could be a possibility that taking the police at their word in all of these cases might have been a mistake. Well, fuck yeah, you dumb shits. 
You know what I mean? What did you think was happening? And the the cost is paid in in human lives and in and in and then in the time that you were were forced to lose from your life and and it's it's just infuriating. And the other thing I just want to say to our community of listeners, whatever you may be engaged in in your life and please don't email me about it in an incriminating way, but when somebody who you are dealing with all of a sudden asks for way more product or asks you to do something that has penalties associated far higher than what you've normally been doing, that is a huge, huge red flag. That is something that should immediately put you on defense mode. And of course, just, you know, whatever risks you take in your life, take them with your eyes open and do everything you can to mitigate those risks. And and just watch for general narkitude, you know. Uh, use your sixth sense for narks. You know what I mean. You've you've had it. You've been cultivating it since you were a kid. The forces who are like trying to manipulate us into admitting wrongdoing in, in these types of cases have really evolved and got really really good at it. You know, good at their crime from the jazz days to the hip hop days. What what uh, enables but, you know. this in the first place is Congress creates these statutes that prosecutors don't always use, but they have them in their tool set uh, that carry very long mandatory minimum sentences where they can take this charge and put put it on someone who's never been in trouble really. And don't, you know, they're going to freak out and panic and immediately offer, you know, information or, or, you know, be willing to cooperate. And most times they're willing to lie to get out of that sentence like this informant in my case, because he was facing 25 years under a drug mandatory minimum. So oh. he was willing to tell the the authorities whatever they wanted to hear, whether it was true or not. But what's interesting is as we get further into my trial, all you see is hip hop. You see pictures of Snoop. You see East Side clothing, which is Snoop's clothing. You see 50 Cent with bulletproof vest on. And you have, they actually played three albums that I produced for the jury. And a lot of the music, my whole jury was all older white women and and, and they're homemakers, not even from the city. So, you know, I grew up in the city. They're from like the outskirts. They're all homemakers and I'm like scared to death. And so I was I was scared. And one juror actually expressed fear to the judge at the beginning of my trial. The juror was scared because they seen guns, they seen bulletproof vests, they seen gangster rap music. And the prosecutor, this gets interesting because the prosecutor actually wrapped lyrics from an album I produced for Mac Dre. Oh my wrapped God. Wrapped him on his closing argument. He started his closing argument rapping Mac Dre lyrics. And he said, this is what this case is all about. And I had no chance. Even when I interviewed jurors after the fact, they said, look, we saw, we thought the informant was lying. We thought that lead agent was lying. But at the end of the day, we couldn't accept that the government does this. And so we had to believe that, that you were guilty of it because why would they charge you if something you didn't do? Now, today, you know, they were like, we understand the system is corrupt and we would not have convicted you. And, you know, the offending conduct was literally, here's a guy that I knew. He's, he was a former friend, walks up to me shakes my hand, gives me a hug, grabs $300 with the cannabis and walks off laughing, joking. It wasn't this situation where the government made it look like it was a dangerous armed drug trafficking offense where bullets were about to start flying off. You know, there were uh, armed machine guns or men around. Like it wasn't nothing like that. It was literally, Hey man, what's up? Here you go. How are you doing? Hug peace. 55 years. Even my judge who was a conservative George W. Bush appointee, a member of the Federalist Society looked at this like, what the fuck? This is something ain't right here. He sentenced a murderer the same day I had to get sentenced. 
And his maximum was 17 years. His minimum was like 10. And so this actually shocked the conscience of a federal judge to the extent that he did something that no judge had ever done in history, no federal judge. And as he was imposing sentence, he said, this sentence is not only cruel, unjust, and irrational, it doesn't make any sense. And he called on the president that appointed him to intervene and commute my sentence. I was so shocked. I felt like I got punched in the stomach when he said, this sentence appears to be cruel and unjust. However, and when he said, however, my stomach just nodded up. I have no choice but to impose a 55-year sentence. But when he followed that sentence by, you know, but I call on the president to commute your sentence, you know, it gave me some kind of comfort and relief, but I still had to walk out and be escorted by the U.S. Marshals, go to a maximum security penitentiary for 55 years. You know, I don't know what the president's going to do or the next president. All I knew is that I had a 55-year sentence, had never been to prison before. And so, you know, I'm look, I'm staring in the face of a life sentence. Uh, a couple months ago, I was making hit records with, you know, the biggest rappers in the industry. And then the next minute, you know, I'm staring and staring at a life sentence. Dude, that is incredibly tragic. I think it, it it hits us right in the gut because, you know, the the transaction you're describing, right? Buying an ounce of weed, laughing, joking, like that is how we purchase cannabis for so much of our lives. You know, in a lot of cases, that's still how we purchase cannabis. And to think that you could be targeted in that way, it's just heartbreaking and i think it's you know it's something important for the people who are too young maybe to remember that times like this existed that you gotta hear stories like weldon's to really understand the privilege that we have now and i I think you know in a lot of places and you know in fact in a lot of places we still don't right uh you know you've mentioned mac dre your collaborator a couple of times he has had his own story that is in a very similar vein to yours being targeted can you tell us a little bit about how that influenced or sort of added a dimension to what your experience was it's interesting because i ended up going to the same prison mac dre was at usp lompoc and so mac dre got out in 97 and, you know, I, I grew up listening to his music. And when he got out, you know, we reached out to him. I think it was, uh, he got out in late 97. We started working in late 98. You know, we did some records together and went out there and we, we became really close. He would come out to Salt Lake City, Utah. We would hang out. And so when I was in prison, you know, uh, waiting sentencing, I got the word that Mac Dre was murdered. It was messed up because, you know, I had called him from, from jail and like, yo, this prosecutor was rapping your shit you know, at closing arguments. And he was like, damn, he was like, you ain't going to get 55 years. You know, he didn't think that I would actually get 55 years. But I'm like, man, a lot of people don't know the federal system is nothing like the state. There's no parole. And so it was just interesting that, you know, me and Mac Dre met, you know, and worked together. We did a number of songs. We did a whole album together. And that I would end up in not only at the prison he was at, but in the same unit. You know, when I got there, some of his friends were still there. And they're like, yo, what's up, man? This is a sale. He definitely got targeted because of his music. I'm um, just like, you know, Pac did, just like a lot of people. And from from the time that you you're, you're now have been convicted, you are in prison, that portion of the legal process has played itself out. How did you go from there to building a movement to get released and also to shine a light on this very dark and and horrific portion of the criminal justice system. Yeah. So when, when I touched down at the USP Lompoc, I think it was 2004, 
I was shocked because I'm in a maximum security penitentiary and it was the worst of the worst. I'm like, I'm in there for fucking weed. I didn't want to be there for 55 years. I didn't want to leave there in a casket. I'm not going to live to be 80 in prison. So I hit the law library and I started studying, you know, I wanted to understand how this was able to happen and how to get out of it. And I come to find out that the federal system is totally different than any other criminal justice system. It's the worst. And there's the least options to remedy an injustice. My judge tried everything. He could not find a way to get out of that sentence. So how am I going to find a way out of that sentence? And so when I'm sitting in prison, you know, I'm trying to help other people. And as I'm helping other people, I'm learning the system. And I started reaching out to a number of former federal judges, former federal prosecutors. A lot of them knew my story. And a lot of them reached out to my attorney and wanting to help because they felt for my judge. Like this was really heavy on my judge. He was almost in tears. To the, he, was, he was so distraught that he actually drove by my prison a few times just to contemplate what he had to do. And ultimately he quit and walked away from the bench to be my advocate. We had people like Senator Mike Lee, Senator Cory Booker became a huge advocate for me, Senator Rand Paul, Senator Patrick Leahy, and Janet Reno, who was Bill Clinton's attorney general. She helped launch an amicus campaign on my behalf where they fought for me during my appeals to get me out. All of my appeals were unsuccessful. In 2006, the Supreme Court denied it. That was my last appeal. And so the only option now was a presidential pardon. And so when Obama was elected, we got hope. And so we took the supporters like, you know, Alicia Keys, Bonnie Rayet, Snoop, Mike Epps, and then, you know, Booker and Mike Lee. He actually was a prosecutor in the office that prosecuted me. Uh, he wasn't in favor of the 55-year sentence. So when he was elected to the Senate, he reached out to my family to try to help me. We sort of organized this coalition. And I was reaching out to, to my entertainer friends. Like, we, we need to make some noise. You know, this is crazy. When Obama was elected, we organized a support letter that had all the political people that I mentioned, like Janet Reno, all the, you know, former attorneys general, former judges, prosecutors, I think we had 165 people sign a letter to Obama asking him to commute my sentence, followed by my judge and everyone else. And Obama waited until his last two years in office to do anything. And, you know, it took 13 years, but I was finally released in, I think it was May of 2016. By the time I was released, I had this amazing network of unlikely allies. You know, we had Republicans like Mike Lee and, and Rand Paul with people like Cory Booker and Alicia Keys and Patrick Leahy. And so, and, and then I think it was like maybe eight months before I got out, Charles Koch started working really heavily on criminal justice reform. And they started putting some funds into sharing my story and, and, and talking to members of Congress like Chuck Grassley. And ultimately, there was a bill introduced in my name. It was called like the Weldon Angelos Fix, and which would later become the First Step Act. So when I got out in 2016, we started working with the Obama administration's last few months in office. And we were able to get a guy named Ricardo Montes out of prison. He's the co-defendant of Luke Scarmazzo, who I'm sure you're probably aware of. I was actually incarcerated with Luke. For probably about six years, Luke operated a legal medical dispensary in Modesto, California. He was charged at the tail end of the Bush administration under a kingpin statute just for operating a legal medical dispensary because he made a video, a rap video that said, fuck the feds. Go ahead and light you the joint and kick up your legs and put your finger in the air and yell, fuck the feds. See, they tax your bread and you're working for them while I'm chiefing in the grow house, chopping down stems. And so maybe it wasn't the smartest thing to do at that time because the feds were prosecuting state compliant medical dispensaries. And so he was raided and him and Ricardo got 22 years. Me and Luke, we wrote their petitions. 
when I got out, we got it to somebody, you know, in the in the Obama administration, and they granted Ricardo's and they denied Luke's. Made no sense. And so, you know, we worked with Obama for those last few years. We got a few clemencies. And then when Trump was elected, we were like, okay, you know, we're not going to get shit done for four years. Let's focus on legislation. Surprisingly, we were invited to the White House under uh, Trump's administration for a prison reform summit. And so we sort of cultivated a relationship with Jared Kushner's office, Ivanka Trump's office. And in December of 2018, we passed the First Step Act. The First Step Act reformed the statute that allowed prosecutors to seek and secure a 55-year sentence for someone like myself. However, it didn't do anything for purely cannabis cases, which is why we shifted to clemency. And my nonprofit, The Weldon Project, launched Project Mission Green. Project Mission Green is a clemency initiative for cannabis cases only. And so we started working with the Trump administration, and we were able to get a dozen or so um, cannabis cases commuted. Wow, that is absolutely wild. Your th- the effort uh, to get you released and to shine light on it, it brought together some really unlikely bedfellows. I mean, we're talking about Cory Booker and Charles Koch in the same boat fighting for the same issue. Janet Reno and Rand Paul. It's it's really unexpected seeing as your sentence was commuted by Obama and then you were finally officially pardoned by Donald Trump and actually were able to get legislation through. We're actually able to accomplish things that seem completely antithetical to what a lot of cannabis people believe Trump to be about, right? And of course, you're dealing with a president who, to a lot of liberal people, is like the devil himself, right? Is like this total pariah. And yet you were able to collaborate with his administration in this way. Can you comment on that, you know, your personal feelings about it or how you would explain that to someone who would be like, what? When I first got out, I I was speaking out against Trump because he was talking all this nonsense about death penalty for drug offenders. And it was like, what the hell? So I went on MSNBC and I was speaking out against what he was saying. And so it was a shock when we got invited to the White House and I was sitting there in the East Room, I actually went up to Jeff Sessions and debated him about one of his policy changes, and we got it on camera. And so, <laughs> what? yeah, it was crazy. And so because of my judge being so conservative, and it attracted a number of other conservatives like Chuck Grassley, Mike Lee, Rand Paul, you know, I was able to have a good relationship with those in the Trump administration. And I wanted to use that to benefit people like Luke, people like Corvain Cooper, people who are serving life in prison for cannabis. We delivered this letter to the White House that had 25 names on it. And this letter had people like Kevin Garnett signed on, few actors and, and political figures asking Trump to release people who are in there for cannabis. And so we were able to go in there and, you know, and bring a camera in there and deliver this letter and and go back multiple times and advocate for this group. I ended up getting pardoned last December because of my work on the First Step Act, because of my work on clemency. And on Trump's last day, we were able to get help and support the release of 12 individuals who were sentenced to like life in prison for cannabis. And we also got people like uh, Michael Harris, the co-founder of Death Row Records, we were able to get him out. Me and Alice Johnson worked with Ivanka Trump on that. You know, we got out Loon from Bad Boy and a few other non-cannabis cases. But for the most part, we were advocating for cannabis cases and, and we were fairly successful. Uh, we, you know, we asked for him to, to him to do like 50 or 100, but we end up getting, I think, probably like 15 or 16. And, you know, we got to take what we can get. Congratulations on that work. And, you know, anybody who 
talks truth directly to Jeff Sessions' face about weed is greatly admired by us and our and our listeners. And I want to really yeah, just dude. shine a headlight on that and say thank you. And yeah, you know, you're a really, legend for that. You're a legend for that. Thank you. You know, your your release, your pardon, and you're actually sitting there and telling Jeff Sessions what what's what about weed all qualify as great moments. And looking at this coalition of people that you brought together, what occurs to me is having been a part of the drug law reform movement for a number of decades, there has always been a strain of that that is sort of from the libertarian perspective. People who may vote Republican, people who may consider themselves conservative, but who identify around these libertarian positions and who would say, well, my key issues are small government, free enterprise, and personal liberty. And locking people up for growing or sharing or consuming a beneficial plant is certainly not small government. Having helicopters send on Humboldt County or having police roll up in inner city neighborhoods on somebody smoking a joint, that's not small government. No, absolutely not. Restricting people so that they can't sell cannabis or grow it or share it is not free enterprise. And kicking people's doors down in the middle of the night or as happened to you, trying to set them up for crimes is far from... Can I, can I note something really quick? Now that we're talking about that, um, you know, one thing, you know, when I got out of prison, I had the option, do I want to try to get back in music and get my life back? Or do I want to use this this coalition of unlikely allies to to, to make change? You know, I, I chose to do that instead. And, you know, one thing that, that we always focus on, you know, we can't cut with one scissor blade. We can't pass legislation with just like-minded people. So I try not to to spend resources and time preaching to people that, that think like I do. I want to educate people that don't agree with me, like people in the conservative side, like Republicans. And so, you know, just in April, we launched the Cannabis Freedom Alliance to, to accomplish that goal, because not enough people, in, in, you know, are, are engaging Republicans for passing a descheduling bill. And so we launched the Cannabis Freedom Alliance with Charles Koch and his network with the sole purpose of educating and engaging Republicans, because I really want my people out of prison. I really want to end the federal ban on cannabis. And the only way we're going to get there is if we have 60 votes. We're not going to get 50 votes doesn't pass law. And so, you know, when I got out, I wanted to use my conservative contacts to educate them, you know, to tell them my story and other stories like Luke's. And so, you know, I just wanted to note that it's very important that we engage the other side because a lot of people spend a lot of time and resources rallying up like-minded people. And I think, you know, we need to shift our attention to bringing the other side over so we can get this done. Yeah, absolutely. And we definitely applaud that sentiment. I think especially now it's very easy to sort of other people who have different political opinions from you. There's this really deep hatred that's grown between the polls. And I think within each side of the middle or whatever you want to call it, everything's been obscured. Nobody really knows whose politics are what. I mean, right now we are cannabis advocates who essentially were part of a movement to elect a president now who has a terrible history when it comes to the drug war, who has been very antithetical to cannabis progress, who is now in the hot seat and is demonstrating that he has not really meaningfully evolved 
on the cannabis topic, right? Despite all the evidence. I mean, as we're saying now, this is no longer a partisan issue. There's people like you who can get out there and reason with people and educate and get them on this side. And yet, right now, we're dealing with an administration that is absolutely not prioritizing cannabis liberalization in this way. So can you tell us a little bit about your efforts to get the Biden administration to release cannabis prisoners and stop making those arrests? Yeah, absolutely. So after Trump left office, I think it was February, we had submitted a proclamation. I think we we did this with Reform Alliance, uh, Alice Johnson, Normal, a few other groups, asking him to do a categorical pardon grant. A few weeks after that, the White House counsel had reached out to set up a phone call with me and my organization, and they're looking into doing something on a broader scale with, you know, nonviolent drug offenses, but also something in specific with regard to cannabis offenses. But it hasn't been moving as fast as we had hoped. So we, we're in contact with the White House counsel. We speak, you know, on a regular basis. I mean, we're trying to work with other people at the White House to try to get him to do something soon because on the campaign trail. He was promising that he would let people out of prison and he can't expunge the record. So he probably meant pardon. And so we're trying to hold him to it. As president, I'll work to reform the criminal justice system, improve community policing, decriminalize marijuana and automatically expunge prior marijuana convictions. I'm Joe Biden and that's my commitment to you. And so we've been working. We have this uh, influencer engagement a program that we're doing with the Weldon Project in Mission Green, where you know we've been working with people like Russ, uh, Drake, Killer Mike, and, and you know a lot of other people to put pressure on Joe Biden to do something like this and do it now. Yeah, absolutely, and we're gonna endorse that officially as great folks in weed history, uh, Biden administration. Let him out. Let him out. Yep. And we're not going to let up. We're going to keep pressuring the president until he does it. We're not going to let him off the hook because he did contribute to a lot of the mess we're in with the 94 crime bill. He needs to clean it up. What's so beyond infuriating is we have people right now being punished, being held in prison for laws that we've all seemingly accepted were mistakes, including the president. Well, you can start with a wave of a pen right now and make that change. And the fact that you don't do that immediately shows that there's politics in all of this. And the fact that these laws have remained in place for so long, one point I like to try to make is it's easy to make the case that the drug war is a failure. And it is. But the other case is that it has been a success because it has been prosecuted and implemented by people and institutions who want to put black and brown people in prison, who want to create a police state, who want to have a means by which to limit our constitutional rights and to disrupt communities that they find threatening. And so as we push back and ultimately topple this system, we have to keep in mind it worked very well for people with very, very bad ideas. And I think the work that you're doing, Weldon, among many other things, is helping to draw that line and say, you cannot continue these policies. You cannot leave the people that are in prison there unless you believe 
that this is a success, that the war on drugs works. And I really appreciate you sharing that perspective, not just here on the show, uh, but obviously speaking that truth to power. I do have one more question. You don't you don't have to answer this one if it doesn't feel good. But I know, you know, I believe a pardon wipes the slate clean. So have you been able to start consuming cannabis again in legal states uh, since you've been released? A felony doesn't prevent you from, you know, consuming cannabis. And so I, I was on probation for only a year and I think a year and a half. So I gotten on probation in January 2018. So the felony conviction never prevented that. <laughs> probation did because on federal probation, you know, cannabis is still illegal federally and they don't recognize state law, which what I want to note since we're closing the injustice. And, uh, I'm, and I'm not against companies making money off cannabis, but big companies, MSOs, you know, even the smaller companies are all violating federal law. The feds do not recognize state marijuana laws, and they can prosecute anyone at any time. But currently, the federal government is keeping people like Parker Coleman, Terrell Davis. Parker Coleman serving 60 years for cannabis, nonviolent cannabis offense. Luke Scarmazzo serving 22 years for doing it the right way and following state law. And Terrell Davis is uh, otherwise known as Rollo's facing eight years for selling some cannabis, while the federal government turns a blind eye to the big MSOs, allows them to break federal law, but become rich. But they're keeping select individuals in prison for doing the same thing. And that's an injustice to me. Oh, yeah, that is a deep injustice. And thank you for highlighting this side of the unfairness of corporate cannabis, because a lot of people don't make those comparisons. Uh, but I also like to highlight that you didn't totally answer Beanstalk's question about whether or not you're smoking cannabis. And I'm just wondering, also, you can totally plead the fifth and say, I'm not going to answer that question. Uh, you can wink at us or something, but we just hope. <laughs> well, we just I kind of did that. But, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, not prevented from, I can do whatever I want. Even when I got out, I could. So, you know, I'll answer it like that. Let me Fantastic. put it this way. I think as we wrap up, we're certainly going to light one up to your freedom, to your struggle. And, and, awesome. and to your your very, very good works on behalf of so many in this community. Yeah, I will smoke to that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Weldon Angelos, thank you so much for being on Great Moments in Weed History and sharing your story and for all of the positive work you do, man. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstalk, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.